Amen. Well, there is a debate amongst uh, worldviews and religions and historians as to whether or not the history of the world is cyclical or linear, right? Uh, is history simply a recurring pattern of birth followed by growth, followed by uh, decay, and then the eventual death of individuals, institutions, and empires? Or is history linear, like a story with a beginning, middle, and end that's guided by some higher plan or purpose? Though Christianity historically has always acknowledged that smaller kinds of cycles can be spotted in the study of history, we believe that God has a plan for history that He's working out in linear fashion, a, a history with a beginning, middle, and end guided by His good plan and purpose. And in Ephesians chapter 3, the Holy Spirit enlightens us about what that plan is through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And while you're turning there, allow me to say just a few words about the context of what we're going to study today. In the last half of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes to the predominantly Gentile church in Ephesus about their salvation, but he doesn't do so in individual terms about their salvation uh, individually. He talks in communal terms about how through Christ they've not only been reconciled to God, they've also been reconciled to God's people. Uh, and they are now in union with the rest of God's people. And Paul uses at the very end of chapter 2 three illustrations to show our union with God's people. He says that we Gentile Christians are now fellow citizens of the kingdom of heaven with the saints from every generation of redemptive history, including Abraham and Moses and King David. We are also true members of God's spiritual family, adopted by Him as sons and daughters, and we are like living stones being placed in interconnected, interdependent fashion in a larger temple where God's presence dwells and is worshiped. And then having, having explained how God has brought Jew and Gentile together in the church, Paul starts to break out in a prayer of praise in chapter 3, but at the end of chapter 3, verse 1, something he says as he's introducing this prayer, transitioning to go to prayer, it causes him to break off. It causes him to break off from what he was saying and digress into an explanation of his apostolic ministry. And you can see the prayer that he was about to pray. You'll be able to see it when we get to chapter 3, verse 14 and following. We're going to get there in a few weeks. Uh, but you can also see his motive for this digression in chapter 3, verse 13. In fact, uh, let's read Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13 together so you can see what I'm talking about. In Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says, uh, for this reason, you know, based on the way that God has brought Jews and Gentiles together in the church, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the secret, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the secret of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power.' 
To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that having read the Apostles' words, You would now give us insight through them into the secret of Christ and that understanding the secret of Christ, that it would then shape our lives and the way we raise our kids and how we help one another and how we do ministry at Grace Fellowship, how we do evangelism, how we support the Gideons, how we fund missions. Oh God, please show us the meaning of what you've communicated through Paul and the implications of it for us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul launched out into a prayer. He had been giving this doxology of praise about God's grand plan of redemption for us, and it was almost like he couldn't help himself. He just breaks out in this prayer of praise, but he begins the prayer by saying, for this reason. In chapter 3, verse 14, he's going to begin, he's going to transition to another prayer by saying, for this reason reason. And so, I interpret in verse 1 when he says, for this reason, I believe he's transitioning from talking about God's marvelous plan for the church into a prayer. But before he gets to the prayer, he goes into a digression. Why the digression? Well, I believe Paul gives the reason in verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. You see, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus from prison in Rome, and he knew that they knew he was in prison precisely because of his ministry to Gentiles. It was because Jews uh, back at Jerusalem had accused Paul of bringing Gentiles past the dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles in the temple from worship. Uh, They accused him of bringing Gentiles past that dividing wall. That was why there was a mob and they wanted to stone him. That's what originally got him in trouble and set him down this path where he had to work uh, on uh, the issue of his legal status and his imprisonment by the Roman authorities. The Ephesians know this. So, Paul knows that no matter what he writes, they're going to want an update on how he's doing And I think he anticipates that they could be discouraged. He's been in prison now for four years as he writes this, and I think it could be discouraging to a Gentile church that the apostle to the Gentiles has been in prison this long, and we still don't know what the outcome will be. And so, he writes to help them in that discouragement that he anticipates, to tell them not to become discouraged. And one of the things he writes about is the great privilege that he has of this apostolic ministry. And so, in verses 2 through 12, you're going to see him write about the nature of his ministry, and he uses one word repeatedly to describe the theme of his ministry. And the theme of his ministry is preaching the mystery of Christ. I'm preaching to you from the New American Standard. Uh, It uses the word mystery. And if you weren't with us last week, let me tell you that when you read the word mystery in this context, you can't think of it like we think of the English word mystery. When we say something's a mystery in English, we, mean, we, either, we either mean, oh, it's just a big mystery, we'll, you know, we'll never be able to figure it out, 
Or we're thinking of something like a good murder mystery where you can discover who the perpetrator was with careful investigation. But that's not what Paul is talking about here when he talks about a mystery. He is talking about a divine secret in the mind of God that was not discoverable by human investigation, a secret, a divine secret, that is only made available to us now because God has chosen to reveal it. And that's why you may have noticed when I was reading through the passage, I used the word, I substituted the word secret for mystery because I believe Paul is talking about the, the center of his apostolic ministry being the proclamation of a divine secret. And as we work our way through these verses, I've decided to outline them by asking Paul a number of questions which the content of his explanation answers. And the first question was, to whom did God reveal this secret? We looked at this last week when we studied verses 2 through 4, and the short answer is Paul. He revealed it to Paul. Uh, We learn later on in verse 5 that he also revealed this secret to the other apostles and New Testament prophets. But Paul tells us in verse 4 that this secret wasn't revealed to him just for his own benefit. It was revealed to Paul so that Paul would spread the word and all Christians who read this letter can understand the secret. Again, Paul says in verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the secret of Christ. I believe when Paul says there, when you read, he's referring to the public reading of this letter to the church in Ephesus, but I believe he also anticipated it would be read by the surrounding churches, the churches around the church in Ephesus, the the churches in Asia Minor, and that eventually it would be read by all Christians and all churches. And the implication of what he's saying is this, whenever you read this letter or you hear it read out loud, you can understand this secret of Christ that God has revealed. Now, Right now, at this very moment, I am supposed to be giving a quick review of last week that gets us to verse 7, so we can pick up where we left off. But I can't help myself, because Paul said, when you read. What that means is this, when Paul says in verse 4, when you read, he is tapping into a sequence in redemptive history that every Christian and every faithful Christian institution uh, is uh, influenced by. It's, It's part of the story of our lives and the story of our institutions. You see, there is a sequence here to how this secret gets out. Let me explain the secret sequence. God had a plan for history, which He kept secret during Old Covenant times, under the Mosaic Covenant, under the Old Testament, He kept it a secret. But when Christ came and ushered in the new covenant in His blood, God revealed that secret to new covenant apostles and prophets. And when they were moved by the Holy Spirit, those new covenant apostles and prophets wrote gospel accounts and letters in which every word was God-breathed and was part of revealing the secret of Christ. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us that that was how God planned it, because back under the old covenant, God had Old Testament prophets like Moses and the other prophets write down Scripture where every word was intended uh, by God. And what happens next in this sequence is this. People come along and they read what the apostles and the New Testament prophets wrote down, what was inspired, and the Holy Spirit uses it in their lives to open their spiritually blind eyes and to soften their spiritually hard eyes hearts. And the point I want to make here is that the reading of sacred Scripture isn't enough. 
the Holy Spirit also has to work in people's hearts as it's read. That's why Paul prays even for the Ephesians who are already believers. Back in chapter 1, he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would see the riches of all that God has done for us in Christ. And when the eyes of a person's heart are enlightened, what happens? They confess their sin for what it is. They turn, they repent, they turn from living life their own way and ignoring God, uh, and they place their faith in Christ. Uh, And then they live a life of praise to God. That's the sequence of how the knowledge of this secret of Christ goes from being a secret in the plan of God uh, to being uh, something that has been revealed in human history for individuals to see the glory of Christ and follow Him. Now, the implications of this sequence are staggering. This sequence is why everywhere gospel-believing Christians have gone throughout the world, we have been people of the book who read the book, raise our kids to be able to read, found schools to teach other people to read, right, Uh, who send out missionaries to translate this book into other languages for other people groups to read. This is why the Gideons want to distribute Bibles. It's because they believe that when people read the Bibles they distribute, they can understand the secret of Christ and be reconciled to God, whether they're reading Ephesians or Matthew or Romans or one of the other New Testament books. Uh, This is why everywhere evangelical Christians have gone, we founded seminaries to train our pastors to be good readers and faithful interpreters uh, and explainers and accurate preachers of God's Word. And for Christians in any given culture, this job of being a reader and helping other people read, it's a never-ending task, both individually and corporately together. Individually, we're still all trying to become better readers and doers of God's Word, And we're working to train up the next generation to be able to read God's Word for themselves and understand the words and understand the meaning of what the various biblical authors are saying in a way that is clear and accurate and powerful and beautiful. And even this job of translating the Bible into other languages, it's never done for two reasons. Number one, there are still some cultures in the world that don't have the Bible in their language. But even in the cultures that have a Bible in their language, even if it's the best translation ever, language changes over time, and so eventually we're going we're to need to update and revise that translation. And so this is a job that is never done. We are people of the book. And the point I want to make here about when you read is that God gave us a book, not a DVD. Uh, You may not naturally be drawn to reading. You may not be someone who likes books, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a reader. Now we just have to work on your attitude about it. And look, if you have trouble reading, like honestly, like if you're a struggling reader, you're dyslexic or you have, that's okay. God designed His Word to be read publicly, which means you can listen to it read and still receive the same benefit. He, He wrote the whole Torah for Moses to have read to the children of Israel once a year at one of their festivals, right? That you can listen, you can get the Bible on audio for free and listen to it on your iPhone. So, but whether you read or listen to it, you need to become a man or woman of the book who influences your friends and family and loved ones to also be people of the book. Now, all of that was my own digression, and I was triggered by Paul saying, when you read, and I'll stop now. Uh, The main point we were talking about in these verses is just 
who, who, uh, who, to whom did God reveal this great secret? Well, He revealed it to Paul and the New Testament apostles first, but He revealed it so that all who read the New Testament uh, could understand what had previously been a secret in the Old Covenant, and God revealed this for the benefit of all. The second question we asked and answered from the text last week was, when did God reveal this secret? And verse 5 answers that question. The short answer is that from creation until the coming of Christ, God kept the secret of Christ mostly to Himself. Now, I say mostly because in the Old Testament, you can find hints and clues about the coming of the Lord's Messiah, and even that in His coming, the Gentiles would receive mercy. You can find those clues under the Old Covenant. But the secret of all that Messiah would accomplish was nowhere near as fully known as it was made known in the first century through Jesus, the apostles, and the New Testament prophets. Our third question for the text is, uh, what exactly is this secret of God? Well, the passage gives two related answers. First in chapter 4, excuse me, in verse 4, Paul says uh, that the secret is the secret of Christ. In other words, God's best-kept secret during the Old Covenant was the secret of who Messiah would be in His person and all He would accomplish. But there's a second answer in the passage that you find in verse 6. You see, from time to time in his letters, the Apostle Paul writes about one part of what Messiah would accomplish as a great secret. Christ Himself in His person is the secret, yes, but there's also part of what He would do that also was a great secret, and Paul refers to it in verse 6, and that secret was the way that Christ would bring together Jews and Gentiles, and He would bring them together with equal spiritual status uh, as part of a new entity called the church, and you, you can see that answer in verse 6. By His sufficient, once for all, never-to-be-repeated sacrifice, Jesus destroyed the ritual separation in worship between Jews and Gentiles, and He did so in order to make the Gentiles fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of all of God's promises to His people. God's best-kept secret before sending His Son into the world was who His Son would be and what He would do. And part of what He would do was fulfill all of the ceremonial and sacrificial requirements of the law in His life and death, and then He would bring Jews and Gentiles together in a new spiritual fraternity called the church. That's where we left off last week. But there's two more questions left that I want to address uh, in our outline. Question number four is this, how did God broadcast this secret to the world? Well, that's addressed in verses 7 through 9. Let's look at them again. Uh, Paul talks about how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which, verse 7, I was made a minister or servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery or secret which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. 
Now, back in verse 5, Paul mentioned that God revealed this secret to other New Testament uh, apostles and prophets. Uh, So, what happened is God revealed this secret by telling the leadership of the early church. The leadership of the early church then went out and spread the news of this secret first by word of mouth and then through their writing ministry. And you might say, well, by word of mouth doesn't seem like a very effective way to do it, but if you go back and you read the book of Acts, you see that the Holy Spirit helped their word of mouth ministry in a way that was amazing, that just created huge numbers of followers of Christ. And then for our benefit, their writing ministry preserved this secret for our reading in later generations. And so, that's how God got the word out. But how did He get the word out to all the Gentile nations? Well, if you go back and you read in the book of Acts, you can find situations where there's Jews like Philip or Peter who reach Gentiles who are traveling through or living in the land of Israel. But how did he get it outside the borders of Israel? Well, more than any other human being, God used the Apostle Paul as his instrument to broadcast this message to the Gentile nations. Amongst all the apostles of God, Paul was the specially chosen, hand-picked apostle God sent to the Gentiles. And Paul describes the privilege of his assignment this way in verse 7. He was made a minister or servant according to God's grace. He saw himself as a servant of God, and he understand he could only minister because of God's enablement. First, he says that he ministers according to the gift of God's grace. In other words, Paul is communicating in essence God's grace not only saved me, it's God's grace that now enables me to fulfill this responsibility as the apostle to the Gentiles. And second, God's grace was given to me according to the working of His power. Uh, Power here is the same Greek word that descends into our English language as energy. Paul was only able to be a faithful apostle because of the energy of God's power working through him. Now, what Paul is doing here when he's describing his ministry in these verses, it's actually very similar to what Joseph did in front of uh, Pharaoh when he explained Pharaoh's dream. It's very similar to what Daniel did in front of Nebuchadnezzar when he explained Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? What happened when those men did that? Well, two things happened. First of all, they made it clear to the king that their ability to interpret that dream didn't come about because of any special insight that they had or because any sort of uh, special ability or superpower, if you will, that they had. It was only because God revealed the meaning of those dreams to them. But then they also made clear that God didn't reveal those dreams to them because of any special piety on their part any more than any other human being. There was a humility about what Joseph and what Daniel did that gave glory to God, not themselves, in a situation where the kings were primed to give them glory because of their supernatural ability to interpret dreams. Well, Paul is making the same move here. And as he rehearses his own need for God's grace, this isn't because he discovered the secret, and God didn't reveal it to him because he was more virtuous than other people. Before he started following Jesus, he, he agreed with the murder of Christians. He was, in, he was working against Christ and everything Christ stood for. And so, as Paul rehearses his own need for God's grace, it reminds him of how unworthy he is for this office. After all the ways that he rebelled against God, Paul didn't deserve to be part of God's family, let alone be 
an apostle. And so, you get this sort of spontaneous outburst, verse 8. To me, can you imagine that? To me, of all people, the least of all the saints, this grace was given. And here Paul makes up a, a word in Greek that's a superlative that from my own limited knowledge of Koine Greek, it doesn't, doesn't seem to me like it makes good Greek grammar, uh, but whether or not it does, it has a powerful way of communicating. He, he, he uses a word play on the word least that we bring over as least, and he modifies it to say something like this. In essence, he says, I am the leastest, I am the leaster-er. Of, which would not be in proper English, right? I'm the leastest of the saints. And I think he may be creating a wordplay off of his Latin name, Paul, right? Uh, uh, Paul's name, his Jewish name, his given name was Saul. But in his ministry to the Gentiles, he took on the name Paulus, Paul, which in Latin means little or small. And I think what Paul is saying is this, look, I'm small in stature. I've been a small man morally, uh, and I'm small, I'm smaller than the least of all the saints, spiritually speaking. And I don't believe that this is false humility on Paul's part. He really believed what he said here, and you can see a reflection of that when you read Romans 7, and you read him grieving about the sin he still commits as an apostle. Uh, he grieves about his own sin in the light of God's holy and righteous standard as given in the law. It was only by God's grace that Paul was made a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. And in the rest of verses 9 and 10, he explains how he's been assigned to carry out this ministry. He gives us two infinitives that describe what he does. The first is to preach, and the second is to bring to light. Paul was given the unique God-empowered ministry to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ to Gentiles, but also, verse 9, to bring to light the secret of Christ that was previously hidden in God under the old covenant. And I take him, when he says to bring to light, and he doesn't mention the Gentiles a second time, I think what he's actually saying is he brings to light the secret not just for the Gentiles, but also for the Jews who observe his ministry to the Gentiles and who read the letter he's written to predominantly Gentile churches. In other words, for all people, Jew or Gentile, Paul is now illuminating, publicly disclosing the outworking of God's best-kept secret, the secret of Jew-Gentile inclusion in a new organization called the church. So, how did God broadcast this secret? Well, first through the teaching uh, ministry of the New Testament apostles and prophets, but also, secondly, through their written ministries, especially the Apostle Paul who reached the Gentile nations. And that leads us to our final question, why did God reveal this secret? He had kept it a secret in the past, why reveal it in the first century? Well, verse 10 answers, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord." Now, that is one of the most sweeping, comprehensive statements about history, but it's a little awkward to bring into English, and in English we don't follow it well, so let's try to pick it apart here. The key phrase in these two verses is the phrase, eternal purpose of God, literally God's plan for the ages. God has a plan for history and for every age of history. He has a specific plan for what each age in human history is accomplishing. And I say that, that's something that we need to run home to and embrace 
Because if you're like me, when you read the news, when I read the news and I read what's going on internationally, or I read what's going on uh, domestically, let's say, in politics, it makes me feel as if the world is out of control, right? But even though the world is out of our control, it's not out of God's control. He has a plan. He's working it out. He has a plan for the ages. Um, and this plan was conceived of in eternity past amongst the Trinity, and there is an eternal purpose being worked out in it. Uh, Paul has already told us what that purpose is back in chapter 1. Uh, he called it the summing up of all things in Christ. Or to say it another way, uh, when Paul was in prison in Rome, around the same time he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he also wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, and this is how he explained God's goal for history to the church in Philippi. Quote, God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the purpose of God for history, to glorify His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to receive glory Himself through how His Son is glorified. Um, and notice, uh, this is really important. These two verses illustrate why we study the details here at Grace Fellowship Church and why I can't seem to get through more than five verses in any one sermon. The details are very, very important in what they communicate, and you have one of those really important details in verse 10. Look again at verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might, might, now, ugh, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. According to verse 10, it's not just Christ who is at the center of God's plan. Notice how verse 10 communicates that the church is also part of God's plan for the ages. Paul says that it is through the church that God's wisdom for the ages is now being illustrated, now being made known. What that means is this, the church was always part of God's eternal plan. And this is where I need to stop and make a critical theological point. Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we are dispensational. Now, that does not mean we believe or teach every single thing that has been said in the name of dispensationalism down through church history. That, that's not what we mean. But we are dispensational in two senses. Number one, uh, we believe there is a distinction between Old Covenant Israel and the New Covenant Church. They are two distinct institutions. There are saints and true worshipers of God in each one of them, yes, but they're two different entities. And then second, we believe there are still prophetic promises yet to be fulfilled in literal ways for the Jewish people. Now, I bring this up uh, not to contrast our dispensationalism with, other, with the view of other churches. No, no, no. I actually bring this up to correct our dispensationalism. You see, there have been some dispensationalists who have taught that when Jesus went up for that last Passover to Jerusalem, 
that if the Jewish people, the chief priests and, uh, and Caiaphas, right, and if Caiaphas and Annas and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees had all embraced Jesus as their Messiah and Israel's true King, that God the Father would have ushered in by His power, He would have intervened and set up the kingdom of Messiah right then and there. And those who have taught this view, because they think that way, they therefore call the church a parenthesis in God's plan. But I disagree with that for a number of reasons, and one of them is here in Ephesians 3.10. According to Ephesians 3.10, the church has always been a part of God's plan. God's eternal pl plan always involved a transition from the old covenant with its animal sacrifices and God's chosen people as a city set up on a hill to be a light to the nations. There was always going to be a transition from that to Christ being a once-for-all sacrifice, uh, and the Gentiles being included in this new entity of the church that isn't a, a one nation set up as a light to all the other nations, but is uh, a lot of little local churches scattered among all the nations of the world to bring the light of the gospel. There was always going to be a transition from that. This may not be the, the best way to say it, but I'll say it this way. The old covenant always had a built-in expiration date. It was never meant to go on forever. It, it pointed forward to the new covenant that would come, and in that new covenant, the church was always a part of God's plan. Uh, the church was never a parenthesis. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a contingency in God's plan. It was God's plan from the beginning. And what His plan for the church puts on display is His multifaceted, multicolored wisdom to authorities in heavenly places. Paul is talking, when he says authorities in heavenly, heavenly places, he's talking about angels now. Uh, the rulers speaks of angels who are high in rank amongst, in, in the angelic order. Authorities speaks of angels to whom God has delegated the authority and freedom to make important decisions. And so, maybe we could say it this way, just as God won an argument with Satan and vindicated Job in the suffering and redemption of Job, in the same way, God is now putting on display His wisdom and winning arguments in heavenly places through the church being the church. John Stott put it this way, the church is the graduate school for angels. Now, how does this connect to our lives this morning, that, that we now see the secret of Christ and God's plan for the ages. Well, um, the church is part of God's plan for the exaltation of His Son. The church is central to the gospel, and it is part of His plan. It's actually through the church being the church that God's wisdom for human history is put on display. Do you know what that means? It means the church is kind of important, right? And, and so the question is, is the church important to you? It, does your schedule show that it's important to you in the sense that uh, you're willing, at, to, to the extent that your health and to the extent that your other responsibilities allow, are you willing to serve in the local church? Are you willing to help people in the local church outside of the stated meetings of the church who have needs uh, during the middle of the week? Um, uh, the church is important, and related to that, are you praying for your loved ones and friends to value the church? You see, this isn't just about me coming in here with personal application and preaching to the choir, many of you who are already dedicated to the church and you, all, you already serve. 
I think we need to think about the implications of this for the people that God has uniquely placed in our sphere of relationships and how we interact with them. Uh, Are you praying for the people around you to have this mindset about the church and to value the church in God's program? Um, You see, I I think that we're at a moment in history, uh, at least in the English-speaking church, that we need to talk about. And, And here's sort of the flow of history. In previous centuries, in the English-speaking and European churches, there were state-run national churches like the Anglican Church in England or the Lutheran Church. And what happened over time is that even though it was, it was not the intention of the church leaders in these churches, over time these churches became characterized by ritualism, formalism, dead orthodoxy, or theological liberalism. And so what happened? Our evangelical heroes and forefathers from other centuries, they saw what was happening, and they began to exhort people about heart religion, about having a personal relationship with Jesus, about communing with God outside the stated meetings of the church with Bible reading and prayer, about the need to actually obey Christ on Monday through Saturday and not just put on a respectable show at church on Sunday because they looked around them and they saw all these people in the pews who came to church simply out of habit or because it was the thing to do to be respectable in their society or because it was a tradition the extended family have that we all go to church on Sunday, that's part of what we do as a family, or because it was a a social thing to do to get you out of the house and into a situation where everybody is nice and polite to each other and uh, where we meet each other's physical needs. But whatever was going on there with the motives, our evangelical forefathers saw pews filled with people who were in church and thought they were okay simply because they were in church, but they didn't have a saving relationship with Jesus. And so what happened is they came along and they started saying things like, church attendance won't save you, right? Your church attendance, uh, being a, a member of a church and having your name on a church roll, that won't save you with God if you haven't repented and placed your faith in Christ. And that was the message they preached. Now, is that message true? Yes, Is that message helpful for 2023? No, absolutely not, because we have all these people around us who say they're Christians, but they don't participate in the church, haven't for years, and aren't interested in participating with the church. Our our message needs to become, you need to be reconciled to God through Christ and become connected to God's people and become meaningfully involved in a local church. And if you say you're a Christian and you just have zero interest in interacting with God's people, it leads me to doubt your profession of faith because people who really love Jesus, and aren't just saying they love Jesus, people who really love Jesus, they love His people. That's the way this works. Somehow we've created an evangelical American culture where we run into people who say they're Christians but they aren't connected to a local church, they have no interest in being connected to a local church, and we're supposedly supposed to politely tell ourselves that everything is okay, there's nothing to see here, there's no cause for alarm. But that's pure foolishness. Having zero interest in participating with God's people is an indicator of a huge spiritual problem. People who say they're following Jesus but aren't connected to a church are, are putting themselves 
outside the circle of spiritual blessing and protection uh, that the church provides. They're putting themselves outside of the encouragement and help and even informal accountability that I hope we would say that every Christian and every individual needs. Christianity is a team sport. We do so much better for Christ when we do it together. Living out a privatized, just Jesus and me Christianity, it doesn't work, and it might actually be a sign that your family member, friend, or acquaintance isn't saved. Uh, The church is the focal point of world history. It is the theater where God is putting His wisdom on display, not just for you and I and other people, but for angelic majesties. And it's the community where we are helped and help others, where we're encouraged and encourage others, and where we receive accountability and give the accountability that every Christian needs. Um, You can't truly love Christ and not love the people that He loves and has redeemed. And so, I want to exhort you this morning, brothers and sisters, be committed to your local church. I know some of you are visiting from other churches, so that, that applies outside of Grace Fellowship, but be committed to your local church but also pray for the people in your life who claim to follow Jesus but don't have a church home, or maybe they they do love the church, but they're in between churches. They need your prayers. They need your godly influence. Uh, When they stay long-term disconnected to the church, uh, what's going on is this. At best, they are being foolish and putting themselves in spiritual danger. At worst, they're actually Uh, putting on display that they only give lip service to Christ and have a counterfeit faith. They need someone in their lives who will take that kind of situation seriously and at the appropriate time wisely, lovingly say something to them as well as pray for them. So, take their situation seriously. Don't just politely assume they're spiritually safe because they say that they're a Christian. Let's pray.